ski hills are, are absolutely vast as well. You don't have many people on the uh, link chair list. You could have shut down chalets maybe, but to shut down ski hills and then to encourage people to go outside, I mean, it's, yeah. there's so much mixed messaging. So, and, and that's just it. It's uh, for, for the golfers that listen or the people that picked it back up again or found a new passion for it. If we had zero data showing, oh, but you know what was dangerous in the summer? Golf. Even though we have rising cases, why would ice skating now all of a sudden be dangerous? Why would tobogganing be dangerous? Why would skiing, cross-country skiing through trails be dangerous? Ergo, it isn't because golf wasn't. Right. We have learned so much about like ventilation and the effect that airflow has on this virus. And yet here we are still one, one year later, and we, we are still neglecting how important ventilation and airflow is when it comes to COVID-19. I know uh, that it was brought up by a couple of guests yesterday on my show, teachers uh, and potentially moving up the line. It was actually Dr. Michael Warner, who's been such a strong advocate, um, you know, and, and the messaging has been so on point and so much of what he's predicted has transpired and come to fruition. He says teachers should move up the line as far as vaccinations go. What in your mind would what would that do to limit the spread in schools at the high school level where let's face it, I, I do think it's a win. I think it's mostly been a win for the province but especially, Ryan, at the elementary level where there isn't distancing and kids are eating there. For sure, yeah. I mean, all like essential workers should be moved up the list 100%, those that have to go into work that are not able to work virtually. But I think, you know, the teachers in that environment, knowing that some students are not going to wear masks, they're not going to be distanced, and also we can't vaccinate the younger, the, the younger population either. So I think that's another thing, too, that the fact that we can't actually vaccinate those who they're going to be working alongside, that's another problem. I saw you responded. Uh, Travis Can is uh, a communications person in the, with the province, and, and he put it out uh, last night. Ontario has now administered over 23,500 vaccines. You wrote back, that's terrible. 75% still in freezers. And I'm going, this this to me is like an NFL team going, hey, congratulations to us. We're 3-13 and 13 this year. That's like, again, I, I don't know why that's something. To, <laughs> I don't know. The facts are the facts and the numbers are the numbers. But how frustrating is it that this rollout has been so slow? Exactly. It is. It is extremely frustrating because we've known for quite some time that these vaccines are going to be arriving. We have had these vaccines in Ontario since December 21st, and here it is nine days later, and we still have 75% of these vaccines in freezers still. And for us to acquire those vaccines, know who, or yeah, those um, mm. like vaccines, to know who actually had those freezers as well, to be able to locate those freezers, to ship it to those freezers, and then not to be able to vaccinate people with that vaccine. Nine days later, like 10 days later, it's a really huge problem. Give our listeners something on elementary school. Uh, Kids are supposed to go back. I I, I think there's very little information uh, so far. Again, if I'm going to praise Minister Lecce for some things, I have to criticize him for the things I think aren't right. And there's just been no messaging. It's I, I get it. It's the holidays. But the virus is taking no time off over these holidays. We've documented that a million times over. So I, what should elementary school parents expect? Do you even think that there will be a late announcement, maybe even today or tomorrow, that says, guess what? We're not coming back on January 5th. We might be out for elementary school in the province as long as high school students are out. For sure. And I think all this stems from the fact that we had we delayed this lockdown up until December 26th, as opposed to the starting as opposed to starting this December 21st. Now we have to come down from 3,300 cases, not from 2,500 cases. And it's so tough to be able to bring down case numbers. And along with that, 
schools are going to be one thing which will definitely bring down case numbers. They're going to be the one thing which will allow for house-to-house transmission because we're going to have elementary students going back. And if we're sitting at around 2,500 cases, and that's the day that we're supposed to be sending elementary students back, there's a real problem with that. But but you wouldn't have, like, take small businesses. I do think, uh, I'm adamant about this, I would not have closed uh, small retail environments where I think there's great success for these retailers to keep, uh, you know, to, like something as small as an M&M meat shops or, or something, obviously the LCBO stays open, but things that are the size of the LCBO, you wouldn't have closed those, would you? I would not have. Never. I think that was a huge, huge mistake. The fact that we're shutting down these businesses and now we're sending people to the like, big box stores to find these exact same items, which they could have found locally. Instead of finding, mm-hmm. you know, um, a hammer, some nails at your local hardware shop, you've got to go to a big box store along with everyone else. And we're, we're shuffling people into the exact same stores. And that's yeah. not what we should have been doing in this situation. Uh, I know we'll check in uh, next week. I know uh, you're not back in class, obviously, for uh, some amount of time, are you? No, I'm not. No, off for uh, three weeks following that. So um, high school students being moved online, which certainly was the right choice. Um, but we'll see what happens with elementary students. I have a feeling it may have to be extended as well, especially if we're seeing 3,000 cases a day. Uh, listen, thanks very much for making the time. I'm, I'm glad uh, you've been a star. You've been a rock star through this. The Mount Rushmore of, uh, of, of COVID guests for me. And I greatly appreciate you coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. Happy New Year. You got it. Uh, there's Ryan Imgrin, uh, biostatistician, high school teacher as well. All right, got a few minutes here. I want to pursue something uh, that we were pursuing with the mayor of Ajax, uh, and that, of course, is uh, Mayor Sean Collier yesterday. It's got to do uh, with the wetlands and Pickering, but I don't think this is specific just to that region. Uh, the Toronto Region and Conservation Authority, uh, I wouldn't say at war with the province right now, but a lot has ended up changing. And again, a lot of balls are, are in the air at the same time with the province, with the pandemic, uh, with this. Um, Charles McVitie, the extension for Dr. David Williams. So much is out there. Uh, I wanted to bring in Jennifer Innes, who's chair of the Toronto and Region Conservation Authority. She's also a Peel Regional Councillor. Uh, a lot of hats in the town of Caledon, Ontario, which is a great little town. Jennifer, thanks very much for making the time for me. I appreciate it. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I, I had the mayor on yesterday, and I will say, I, I know the mayor has had some allegiance with um, you know, Rod Phillips, and we've talked about uh, Rod a fair bit, um, and uh, and he said some allegiance with, with Doug Ford before, but he splits with them on this, and, uh, and I thought, that's what you're supposed to do. It doesn't matter which way you lean politically, but you're supposed to take care of the people that put you in power, and, and I think he's done an excellent job of that. What are some of the major issues that you see with, with so much of the change and sort of the, the steamrolling of, uh, of a lot of these permits? Well, I don't think we've seen the changes yet. We're going to see them, and it'll be over time. There'll definitely be an accumulative effect, uh, both financial and environmentally. Um, so I think that uh, the, the most significant is that over the last 15, 20 years, the province has done a wonderful job at trying to uh, protect provincially significant wetlands in particular. Um, They've created criteria on how to grade them and how to mark them um, and and what their significance and importance is, not only to the watershed that they're in, but the surrounding region as a whole. Um, And this uh, latest changes to the Conservation Act and the authority for an MZO to basically steamroll the conservation's uh, permitting process um, will really have a detrimental effect uh, into the future. What are the most important things that happen early in 2021 with regard to this issue? What are the important things in Ontario's legislature, or at least in terms of uh, of of uh, the, the, the potential liability that your board also may face? 
So the first thing will be the crafting of the actual regulations within the Act, uh, and that's where we get into the nitty-gritty of how things will actually work and be implemented. So that that will be the first uh, course of action, especially for our board uh, and, and conservation authorities across Ontario. We had a, a Conservation Ontario meeting at the beginning of December um, where TRCA brought forward a motion requesting that the province again give us a liability and identification clause, um, because really with the changes that they have uh, proposed Proposed and that are pushing through, um, it creates a massive liability for our board uh, and for our accredited professionals. You know, we have uh, staff at the TRCA who belong to professional organizations, uh, and you know, their their signature and their stamp uh, is their livelihood. And um, we're now forcing them, being forced by the province, to actually sign something that they don't agree with professionally, uh, and that's that's a big problem for us. And it's also a problem for our partner municipalities because when flooding starts to occur as a result of these Mm -hmm. changes and uh, people's basements are flooding and the infrastructure that we spend millions and millions of dollars on are starting to fall apart who's liable who's going to take on that responsibility and those municipalities as our partners are are going to be liable as well Jennifer Ennis is our guest chair of uh, the TRCA. I was just going to mention that uh, not this time of year, but a couple months from now, um, people are going to watch the weather every day. They live with this 12 months a year. If they live close uh, to one of our great lakes, Lake Ontario specifically, if they go cottaging in the summer, cottage owners watch uh, for water levels and and how much of the the beach they lose every single year. So never mind the wetlands, it's a massive issue, period. It is a massive issue, and I think that that's one of the challenges that the TRCA faces the most is that we have um, areas, you know, we have 5 million people living within our watersheds, and a lot of these communities were built long before we knew about climate change or before it even existed, um, and were built with infrastructure that cannot sustain what is happening today. Um, and now, on top of that, we're faced with massive rapid development uh, upstream that will have an impact downstream as well. So, you know, we're looking at all of the 905. Peel is no exception, the area that I represent. Uh, the community that I represent in Caledon, uh, for the next 25 years will be the fastest growing municipality in Ontario. Uh, And dealing with that infrastructure, you know, Caledon is home to the four major headwaters that flow into Lake Ontario. So we know that what we do here is also going to impact downstream. And downstream, the infrastructure downstream is already a mess quite frankly. Uh, it's it's falling apart. Uh, you know, the federal mm-hmm. government, through their uh, disaster mitigation fund, are trying to give us federal funding to help uh, fix some of those infrastructure and help fix uh, the erosion that we see along Lake Ontario. Um, so those are some of the significant challenges that we're having uh, to face during this time. i got about 40 seconds. Are you hoping this is an important election issue in our province the next time we uh, we come around, whether it's a year and a half or two years from now? The environment should not be a a political decision. It's not political science. It should be based on science. And it absolutely should be uh, an issue in the upcoming election because the environment, if we don't protect it for today, um, will have massive consequences in the future. And I don't think that people right now are really seeing the financial uh, implications that what we're doing today will have on this future. Yeah, yeah. There's no better way to put it than that. Jennifer, have a great New Year. Thanks very much for spending some time today. Same to you. Uh, that's Jennifer uh, Innes from the TRCA. Just to get your COVID numbers in before the 11 o'clock news, 3,328 new cases of COVID-19 in Ontario, 56 more deaths. Um, the people dig to find those numbers. Christine Elliott does not put that on her Twitter feed. 
Uh, the deaths, one between 20 and 39, one between 40 and 59, 17 between 60 and 79, and 37 people over the age of 80 passed away yesterday from COVID-19. Those demographics are important. I mentioned the 41-year-old in Louisiana who was elected to Congress, leaves two little kids and a wife behind. Um, and it, again, it ain't just about death. It's not just about living or dying. Of course, that's the most important thing. Okay, Dr. Andrew Morris in a sec. I want to get to something about California um, and and relate it to where we are right here. I don't know if you've ever been to a hospital in the States. I know I lived in, in Michigan for nine years. We, did, we had one of our babies. I was going to say I delivered it. I was in the room. Uh, one of our kids is an American. Uh, one of our kids is Canadian. But I can't... Um, the the I won't say where the uh, the Canadian baby was born, but there's a lot to praise about the U.S. healthcare system if you're doing well, if you have benefits. Um, I'm not advocating a two-tier system, but I went to a hospital in California once. I was out traveling for work, and and I thought like I tore a hamstring or something on uh, on like the gym treadmill at the hotel. So I went and I, I I didn't know what to do. Like I really was limping all over the place, and I'm like, this isn't this is gonna be a long four days, and. They're beautiful. And everything you see on TV, like like ER, right, that show, that's what a lot of big hospitals are at. I know we have this, you know, we pat ourselves on the back for our healthcare system and our socialized medicine, and we should. And we should. And so many amazing people have stepped up. They deserved all the pots and pans. And they deserve for you to listen to them when they say, stay home, don't go anywhere. But California today... Um, has no room anymore, no room anymore for patients. And they're starting to potentially ration care. And I'd love to know, here's, here's the, key, um, the key phrase. If a patient becomes extremely sick and very unlikely to survive his or her illness, these are COVID patients, even with life-saving treatment, limited medical resources may go to treat other patients who are more likely to survive. That's there. What if it was here? So when doctors are telling you they're running out of space and that ICUs are flooded with people, you should believe them, okay? You shouldn't believe the wing nuts out there, okay? And and again, that's why it's important to give these people time. If it can happen in Cal, you tell me why it can't happen here. Oh, it's the states. Yeah, and they have brilliant, beautiful, wonderful hospitals and healthcare facilities. I lived it. I saw it. We had this most amazing pediatrician. When we moved from Michigan, I hated losing our pediatrician um, for our, uh, our our kid. Now, uh, he wondered what we were feeding him, and we're like, just non- nonstop apple juice. I can't help it that his cheeks are that pudgy. Uh, Dr. Andrew Morris uh, is kind enough to uh, join me now. And uh, again, uh, his messaging has been so, so valuable on this radio station. Your last appearance of 2020. Thanks for making it with me. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. I'm happy to say uh, goodbye to 2020, though, I've got to tell you. <laughs> well, I think of you. Uh, I, I think of you every time I'm on my uh, my little uh, $400 spin bike in my bed. Now, in a non-sexual way, I want you to know that, because you wrote to me on October 30th, get on a bike or get a rower or snowshoes. It Trust me, it's going to be a long winter. And for three weeks, I didn't listen to the doctor. I should have known better. You were right. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that. Yep, snowshoeing, uh, cross-country skiing. <laughs> A stationary bike, whatever you can do, get on it. For sure. When I say that about California, um, is that, I guess, in essence, that's your worst nightmare, that as we get closer to vaccinating more and more frontline workers, more and more um, of our more vulnerable population, and yes, more uh, healthcare workers, teachers, paramedics, when you see the numbers grow and you see ICUs grow and more people on ventilators and, yeah, more people dying, um, it's your worst nightmare. The entire concept of rationing care feels very un-Canadian. 
But is that your worst nightmare that it comes to that? Um, it, I'm not sure that's exactly the worst. It might be. I think we're experiencing my worst nightmare, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. And my worst nightmare is that we can actually comfortably say that we are now seeing daily cases of vaccine preventable disease. And we are seeing, you know, like the number was well over 3,000 today of cases in Ontario, but we're seeing deaths. I've got, you know, I'm on service here at the hospital and I've got a bunch of patients pretty sick with um, uh, under me with COVID. And uh, the, I see each one of these is largely preventable. And so, um, you know, to, to me, we're experiencing that right now. The fact that we're in a lockdown right now and that uh, we are going to have almost certainly an overrunning of our hospitals within the next, you know, f- a few weeks to certainly a couple of months. I, you know, I, I, I think all those things uh, together are, are part of my worst nightmare. We're, we're kind of living it. Dr. Morris, what does overrun mean? Set that up for our audience. Does that mean hallway medicine? Does that mean being treated in a hallway? Does that mean being turned away uh, even for simple non-COVID things that are, that are well, I won't say simple things, but that are painful, people in pain, people that, that think they need treatment, you're going to tell them, we can't take you. So, first of all, the concept of being overrun to some degree is relative because, I, I, you know, um, your, 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 your point uh, that you made around uh, the capacity, for example, in California, we, we have very little excess capacity on a regular day in our hospitals in Ontario, right? We have some of the um, least wiggle room of hospital beds of any, anywhere in, in the world. And so right now, you know, leading into the Christmas holidays, um, we already saw a, a, a reduction in, in clinical and surgical service because of the increase in cases that we've been seeing and the, and the needs for ICU beds. And we're going to continue to see that. Mm-hmm. So the fact that we can't take, we can't provide the usual necessary care, even if we have hospitals that aren't, quotes, overrun, the fact that we're reducing the other care that we would normally provide in hospital for people is a representative of the fact that we've, we're already exceeding um, the capacity that we should be exceeding uh, for this. And every day that we do that, we're reducing opportunities for other really important care. And, you know, if you're asking if we're going to be getting to a rationing situation, I, I don't really know that. You know, we, we actually have a, a remarkable capability to expand, for example, uh, ventilator beds um, but, uh, and, and other hospital beds. We, we do have that um, a, a quite remarkable ability to do that. But, but beds aren't like in a hotel, right? You, yeah. you actually need the people to man them or, to, you know, and that's, the, the, you know, the, the men and women who would be providing all the various kinds of care and often very specialized care. And those are doctors nurses, and even to be honest with you, you know, things like, and pharmacists, but and environmental cleaners, for example, that, that their requirements are also quite specialized. And so, you know, if we lose our ability to provide the usual care that we do, we start going to, 
you know, uh, people who don't do this as their regular job. And that's when things get problematic. Dr. Andrew Morris, our guest, um, Canada is at 0.23 percent um, per 100 people in terms of vaccinations. I know you used the word rage on your uh, on your Twitter account the other day. We're well behind the United States, the UK, Iceland and certainly Israel. Um, people have talked about Israel every day. They've got about 10 percent of their population now vaccinated. What, what's the level of frustration that we're moving so slowly and getting needles into arms? I think there's tons of frustration. I want to be clear that, you know, the the word I use for rage in terms of the whole situation is not just in any way the vaccines. I think the, the vaccines are a really important story, and we need to get those needles into arms. And, and the fact that we haven't been able to get, um, you know, our adult and long-term care immunized yet well two weeks into this um, is is really disappointing um, and and very frustrating because the deaths that we will see uh, or the the new infections that will occur a week from now or even really as of today are in, infections that could be could have been prevented if people were immunized a week ago and so every new long-term care infection that we see is one that was potentially uh, preventable but you know we uh, you know, we've managed successfully in Ontario and really in most of Canada to do most things quite wrong. And mm-hmm. the only the only problem is that, you know, we compare ourselves to so many other places in the world that have done things wrong also that we, you know, politicians and others find kind of solace at this and think that this is, you know, expected or is not unreasonable and we're doing okay. But but we really aren't. Yeah, I'm. I'm sure glad you brought that up. Standard wise, it. It. Uh, I don't doubt it's an incredibly difficult job to be the province's health minister right now. But I've never been madder at her than in the whole like, well, you know, what about Alberta? They're worse than us. Or people just in general conversing, Doctor Morris, and saying, oh, I'm sure glad I don't live in the states. Can we have a higher standard? Can Can we have a higher standard for ourselves? You know, one of the really important problems here is that. Um, with maybe a slight exception of General Hillier, who kind of set out a target uh, yesterday of number of vaccines by July. Um, I'd love to see, you know, even more granular targets. But mm. throughout the pandemic, uh, we haven't really set targets. And, you know, I think, you know, certainly anyone who's involved in uh, whether it's uh, sports or quality improvement or almost anything around process, you know that you perform to your target. And if you don't have any per- a target, well, guess how you're going to perform, right? So, uh, you know, when, when, when we don't have expectations of what our ceiling is on how many cases we're going to allow, of how many deaths we're going to allow, of, you know, our turnaround times for uh, a bunch of uh, processes and our capacity, uh, we end up performing to those expectations. And uh, so it, this is, uh, you know, entirely, A, it's predictable. And I'm going to say a lot of it is avoidable. Yeah. You know, for, for a long time, people were telling me, well, you know, we can't really do much about our borders and importing cases. And now we're hearing, you know, some movement from the federal government on requiring testing on entry, although that's almost certainly going to occur after everyone's come back from their uh, uh, winter vacation. So that's not too helpful. But this could have been done months ago. It should have been done months ago. And there are just so many steps along the way. So for a variety of reasons, whatever it is, we are woefully underperforming. 
I got about a minute, but I, I so appreciate your time. I want to ask you about schools next week. Um, uh, you know, it is unthinkable to me that we've got small businesses shuttered um, where three or four people would be allowed in a store at a time with all the plexiglass and all the precautions. And we're not really in a lockdown next week if there's, you know, a grade two class in downtown Toronto that has 25 kids in it, are we? Yeah, it's a school is, is really complicated because, you know, the economic and social impacts of keeping kids out of school is really huge. It's only trumped by the economic and social impacts of overrun hospitals. And so, uh, you know, they always end up being, there's a fine line around those, but it's hard to imagine that uh, we can in any way, shape or form allow um, in, in school uh, classes to occur over the next few weeks when we're seeing what our uh, current uh, pandemic trajectory is right now. Would you or, uh, you'd urge the province then, as I think many would, you wouldn't be the first or the last to say, keep them, keep everybody at home for at least the next few weeks, at least till the yeah. end of the month. Oh, absolutely. I think we, you know, we, we need actually uh, tighter controls right now because as you know, you and I have just been discussing, uh, hospitals are starting to be stretched thin and it's, it is only going to get worse before it gets better. And, you know, we mm. see no sign of this abating. And I don't think it's going to abate for at least a couple of weeks. So, um, you know, we, we really need to see things uh, turn around before we can open things up. He's medical director of the Sinai Health System, uh, University Health Network, uh, and professor of medicine at the University of Toronto. He's on the job right now, and he made time for us uh, and our listeners. As you have all 2020, thank you very much for doing this. Um, your messaging has been absolutely vital. It has kept people safer than they would have been otherwise. So I thank you for always making time for me. My pleasure. Happy New Year. You got it. Uh, there's Dr. Andrew Morris. Okay, it's Greg in for Kelly. I want to get the thoughts next of uh, the exceptional Toronto Star columnist uh, who joins me now, Bruce Arthur, who is not at Pearson Airport, has not returned to Pearson Airport, and I don't think will be departing Pearson Airport anytime soon, unless I don't know you very well. I did go to Pearson Airport early in the pandemic for a column idea. Um, which didn't pan out, and I still kind of kick myself that I didn't work harder on it because early in the pandemic, what was happening is homeless shelters were sending the people who wouldn't fit in homeless shelters to the airport because it was a safe, warm, and uncrowded environment where they could sleep, where they could be. That's now been stopped by the airport. I should have written it then, and I didn't, and that's the last time I've been to the airport. Interesting. No, I, I yeah, there's so much open space. My God, at Pearson, but but now there isn't, uh, given some of the pictures that we're seeing of people doing exactly uh, what Rod Phillips is doing, but maybe having more reason to. Um, what did you make of his explanation? What are the what are the Coles notes that jumped out at you? I mean, it's it's patently uh, phony, is what it is. I mean, it's the same thing with the premier. Uh, Rod Phillips is abashed because he got caught. Uh, until he got caught, it was working really well. He had had his staff gotten together with his staff and put together an elaborate cover story for his social media, essentially. Uh, there's that great mon uh, collage of nine different pictures in nine different <laughs> shops, but she's wearing the same sweater. And he's wearing the same sweater in his Christmas Eve. You and I both have favorite sweaters, Bruce. We just do. <laughs> True. But, I mean, if, if that's one thing with this is that the cover-up wasn't even very good, right, if you were really paying attention. And, and he bought himself a private COVID test, and he didn't allegedly didn't tell the premier before he left for St. Bart's. And he did Zoom calls from St. Bart's where you can hear the waves in the background, and he's wearing a sweater again. Um, this is... 
This is a cover-up of something that he knew wouldn't play well. Like, I, I don't begrudge public servants taking a break at the end of what has been probably the most trying years of all of their careers. This is clearly something that tonally and in terms of the decision-making shows, shows a, an immense gap between the, the, the lived experiences of Ontarians and Canadians and what Rod Phillips chose to do and to hide. And he hit it because he knew that it wasn't going to go well. And coming back and saying, I didn't mean to deceive. Look, part of politics is you have scheduled posts and you put mm-hmm. together this, this kind of the, the same thing that some of us do with Instagram. You know, like it's this is my world. This is my life to the outside people. This is what I choose to show you. That's fine. This was clearly a campaign of deception to hide what he was doing. So to say I didn't mean to deceive, get out of here. To say I'm no one's more disappointed in me than myself – you got caught going to St. Bart's. Come on. Like, just come back and say, look, this was a really bad decision that I made, a series of decisions that I made. I know it makes me look out of touch, and I'm going to resign as finance minister. Like, that's what I would have done if I were Rod Phillips. At least I like to think so. I, I, I And I look back two days ago to the morning uh, non-apology explanation of the travel, Bruce. And I often think, listen, uh, and, and you've seen it in journalism and broadcasting, and I sure have too, and, and we both probably, you know, put our foot in at times. Do, do you know it right away, or do you try and, you know, slither out of it? And I thought there was a lot of slithering in that first statement where, hey, I left right away after Par- uh, yeah, after Queen's Park. No, you didn't. You left five days later. Hey, I would never have left if I didn't know we were locking down. There's just so much there, and there's almost a defiance. Like, I'm here. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm not there. Um, there's a third part. Get used to it, the kind of thing. That's what I saw in the first explanation of it. And to me, I'm a, I may be on an island, no pun intended. That's almost the most damning thing to me, that you didn't get it when you first get called on something. Not the crime, it's a cover-up, right? Um, now, the thing is, you're right that if you look at the shifting explanations and the shifting amounts of information given, we didn't find out right away where he was. We didn't find a way that he'd already find out that he'd already been to Switzerland in August, which is a little back in August. It's a little more explicable, like it's not as bad as doing it. Like the, the explanation that oh, I left right away after the legislative session. Well, five days later, sort of right away, and then saying I didn't know we were going to lock down. What he's saying there is two weeks out we didn't have a plan or else i'm telling you that we didn't have a that i didn't that we didn't have a plan like it's it's an admission that ontario was kind of flying by the seat of its pants and when he left they weren't planning to lock down and two weeks later when it was eminently predictable that we were going to have to be in a lockdown situation some of us have been predicting it since probably october um then that's what happened like this is all this isn't the biggest issue in ontario today that's the funny thing yeah i know that's the kind of the, the amazing thing about this is this is the most classic political scandal type type thing, right? This is the stuff where we're talking about appearances. The stuff that's happening at the tender care long-term care home in Scarborough is probably the worst thing that's happening right now. The fact that we have 345 people in the ICU, which if you look at every modeling presentation going back to October, each one of them says, we're going to blow this ICU capacity and then we're going to go to the next one if we don't do enough. We didn't do enough, and we've kept winding up where we are. Those are the big issues, is people are dying and people are in hospital, and our health system is teetering a little bit. The fact that Rod Phillips did this, well, this is all happening. Well, this was all predictably happening. 
is what makes this some tone deaf, really. Bruce Arthur, Toronto Star, joining us. Um, yeah, I mean, brass tacks, uh, since we're talking, happiest person this happened is, is Marilee Fullerton. Not that it, it absolutely pushes it off uh, a lot of the headlines and front page. We're not following her around this morning, as we should be. We're following the finance minister in an airport coming back from a vacation. So, you know, not, not that she has responded to scrutiny and objective criticism at all in the last nine months. Uh, Ontario's Betsy DeVos doesn't care about that stuff. Well, and we're not, yeah, we're not talking about the fact that Quebec uh, launched its extra hiring of PSWs in May and Ontario did it in late September when it was too late, right? And we, when we, we just couldn't get people into long-term care homes. We're not talking about the fact that the IPAC infection control measures that were recommended in the summer still had not been implemented as of November and maybe December. I haven't checked on that. Um, we're not talking about the fact that tender care was allowed to happen and that there are residents in there protesting and banging on the walls asking for food and water. That's happening in Ontario, nine months into a pandemic in which the Premier said, we're going to put an iron ring around long-term care homes. And what's happening in ICUs is happening after it was said that health is the number one priority in this province, and it clearly wasn't. Like That's the thing. The bill is coming due for a series of decisions which dates back to the spring. And this decision that Rod Phillips made, this one was made whenever he booked a trip to St. Bart's over the holidays and he could afford it. So good for him. But the other stuff that's happening is a culmination of avoidable bad decision making that, I mean, they had a lot of people shouting, this is what you should be doing. And this is what they didn't do all the way up to now. And so Marilee Fullerton is one piece of this. I think she's been an unbelievably poor minister and that she owns this file then come up and say society failed long-term care homes when you failed to put stuff in place for the second wave and that's your responsibility that to me was probably much worse than anything Uh, i mean i thought i thought robin urbach nailed in the globe a voice i consider as important as yours these last nine months and and she was basically like uh, the second wave, it's all on the Tories. It's all on the Tories. If you want to talk in March and April about the Wynn Liberals and the McGinty Liberals and how this has not been fixed since since Mike Harris rolled in and, and, and changed a lot of the standards and lowered a lot of the standards, I, I can listen. Those are conversations. This is all this is all one government's doing in the second wave when they had all summer and spring to prep, period. Well, and when they were told. When yeah, they, they were told. told. They were told what was going to happen if it didn't happen. Like the first wave, I thought the Tories did reasonably well in the first wave. Yeah. Ford shut down schools relatively quickly. They were behind places like BC in getting and doing the right things to long-term care homes, and that was a mistake. And the people died as a result. That was absolutely something that happened. You can compare what, what Bonnie Henry did and what David Williams did and what this provincial government did in terms of how long it took to stop PSWs going between homes. But that at least was early in the pandemic, and you could say, okay, we made a mistake. And you can understand that. You can forgive that. To not, to, what's been happening since September is that every senior care advocate, every infectious control person has been saying, as community levels of the infection rise, it will make its way into long-term care homes and people will die. It's a very simple calculus. And that's been being told to the government all the way along. And the fact that this was not prevented, that, that you don't see this happening in other provinces. Like outside of Quebec, Quebec has made its own long-term care mistakes. You don't see this happening in B.C. You don't see this happening in Alberta or Saskatchewan or Manitoba. You don't see these giant outbreaks. And so 
this is that they own this second wave. Like you can say the first wave caught the whole world by surprise and maybe it shouldn't have, but it did. And you can blame the federal and municipal yes. and provincial governments. They all own their share in the second wave. The provinces are in charge of epidemic response, and they own this. Everybody knows what their job is to do. I got, I got two quickies for you on Phillips. One, I might be on an island. A lot smarter people than me tried to convince me otherwise, but I was emboldened by my long-shot underdog bet that Ford may not have known Phillips was going to travel in advance. Um, the second part, do you, I mean, do you disagree? The second part, I, I don't think he's the finance minister within a week. I do think Ford has an easy opportunity here. Harder with Fullerton, harder with Lecce, harder with uh, Dr. David Williams even. I think he's got his opportunity here, and I think this is a layup to say, I make my, I make my government members accountable. Uh, I mean, maybe. Here's the thing with David Williams. He was supposed to retire in the spring. It wouldn't have been hard to replace him. It would have been really easy to say to Vera Etches in Ottawa, you're the new CMOH. That would not have been a difficult decision, and it would have been an easy out. And instead, they extended his contract into the fall, and people in the medical community's stomachs dropped through the floor. Yeah, like that's, that's so. I, I think this government is stubborn. I think it is reflexively loyal in a way that is more about our team than about individuals. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if Rod Phillips, they just wait this out. Like the fact that it's going international, the fact that the Guardian and Fox News are talking about it, the fact that he is an international figure of ridicule, I think probably hurts. But I'm not going to I'm not going to count on this government to do the right thing when it comes to accountability, because I'm not clear when they've done that very often. Um, It's not exactly a pattern for the Ford government. Yeah. Do you think Ford knew in advance? Yeah, that that feels like there'd be an email trail. That feels like that'd be an easy thing to prove that he didn't. I'll I'll say this. Um, people who know more about politics than me say that in if you if you go to small provinces, they know where their ministers are at all times because that's just a part of running a government. Mm-hmm. Like that, that, it's not like it's not like a boys' school or a girls' school where you sneak out after after a curfew. <laughs> like this is this is something that. Any reasonable government, especially in a crisis, knows where its ministers are. So uh, if, if, if he didn't tell the premier, if the premier didn't know, it's a breakdown of process or it's a breakdown of competence or it's a breakdown of something else. And if he did know and he let him go, then I think we'll probably find out at some point. It's not Ferris Bueller and Ed Rooney, Bruce. It's just uh, <laughs> why, why didn't why didn't Mr. Principal Rooney want to get Cameron just as badly? I've never I never understood that. Uh, Happy New Year to you and your family. Thank you very much for making time for me on this radio station in 2020, and uh, we'll talk in 2021. Wish you the best. Happy New Year to you and your family, Greg, and to everybody listening. Let's hope we have a hell of a better year next year. We're rolling towards it. Uh, there's some positive signs.